So I love looking at old photos, especially photos of my childhood. It, it reminds me of, well, well, it reminds me of the ridiculous haircuts that my mum used to give my brother and me. Uh, but more importantly, it reminds me of where I've come from and gives me a sense of rootedness. Uh, I expect that most of us enjoy looking at photos uh, of the past. But what if we could look at photos of our future? Physicists have considered time travel to be theoretically possible since Einstein came up with his theory of relativity. Uh, but if anything gets be- sent back in time, I reckon it'll be data, it'll be images and information before anything else. So you heard it here first. Now, I don't know whether that will ever be possible, but imagine if we could look at a picture of our future. The short series uh, that we're doing at the moment on Revelation is called Postcards from Paradise. Of course, Revelation doesn't give us an exact visual image of the future, but it does tell us where everything is headed. And in today's reading, we get a very clear picture of the church, the future church, as it will be when Jesus returns and heaven and earth meet. You might remember from previous weeks that John had this amazing dream or vision and he was taken up into God's throne room where he saw all kinds of uh, strange and wonderful images, each with a corresponding meaning. Uh, Last week we heard about the 24 elders who most likely represent God's people. We also heard about the four strange creatures that represent the whole of sentient creation. Today we're looking at a picture of the church. And you might say, hold on, you said that the 24 elders represent the church, the people of God, so that's already been covered. And yes, the 24 elders do represent the people of God, but in apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is, you get layers of imagery that all points to the same thing. So here's John's description of the church from verse 9. It says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. People from every nation, tribe, people and language. This is so important. Because sometimes certain groups can feel disenfranchised, uh, even within the church. I recently watched some uh, old footage of Michael Parkinson interviewing Muhammad Ali, uh, who recounts a conversation that he had with his mother. And it's pretty funny the way he tells it, but he's making a serious point uh, about his impression of Christianity and society as a whole. And here's part of what he said. He said, Mother, how come everything is white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde hair and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's Supper all white men? Even the angels are white. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? Now, he got a laugh from the audience, uh, but he was making a serious point. Recently, when we were running Alpha at uh, Brisbane Youth Detention Centre, 
An Aboriginal boy made a kind of off-the-cuff remark, but he basically said that Christianity is a white religion. And I can understand why I would think that. Because I googled the name Jesus and pulled up all the images, and for the most part, he was depicted as being whiter than I am. Hardly ever was he portrayed as a man from the Middle East, a Palestinian Jew, which is really strange because that's what he was. But I don't want to get caught up on what Jesus looked like. More importantly, what do his followers look like? And the answer is that they are phenomenally diverse because Jesus is for everyone. He came for the whole world. I don't know what pictures Muhammad Ali saw, I can imagine, but I wish he'd seen this picture of the church from Revelation 7 that we're looking at today. You know, the church in every age is supposed to give an indication, a foretaste of what it will be like when heaven and earth meet. And this is a challenge because many congregations are formed on the basis of uh, national identity and language, and that's totally understandable. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to understand what's happening uh, in a service. But I think whenever possible, we should have congregations that are made up of people from all walks of life, backgrounds, nationalities, and people groups, because that is a truer representation of what the church actually is. It's true to this image that we've seen uh, in Revelation. And that's one of the things I love about this church. I'd like to think that anyone could walk through those doors and look around and think, yep, I can belong here. So John sees this huge multitude uh, dressed in white robes to show that they're washed clean of their sin. And they're waving palm branches, which is a celebration of victory. And he heard them cry out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Matthew's Gospel, which is the first book of the New Testament, when the angel visits Joseph, this is what he says. He says, she, that's Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. That's the promise that we get on the very first page of the New Testament, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, here in the book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that promise. A multitude that no one could count, who are not only saved, because uh, if we know and love Jesus, we are, in a very real sense, saved. They're not only saved, but they are now finally safe forever. And you know what's amazing? If you've given your life to Christ, your face is in that crowd, in that multitude. That's what I mean by looking at a picture of the future. In this vision, one of the elders turns to John and says, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And John replies, sir, you know. And the elder said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, to make sense of this, we need to remember the context of those seven churches to whom Jesus sent this revelation or this letter. They had suffered extreme persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. Um, this letter was most likely written during the reign of uh, the Emperor Domitian. So another wave of intense persecution was either underway or about to begin. Imagine 
if you and your loved ones were in constant danger of being dragged out of your home and tortured to death simply because you belong to Jesus. Because that is a reality for many Christians around the world today. Uh, Some of the world's oldest churches in Iraq and Syria are in danger of disappearing altogether as a direct result of persecution. How much would those churches and those families appreciate this postcard from paradise? This picture of the church, safe and with Jesus forever. I've had some pretty dark times in my life. I expect you have too. Uh, Times when I felt uncertain, hopeless, fearful about the future. If at those times you'd shown me a picture of what God had in store for me, I would have been so encouraged. It would have changed my perspective. If you'd shown me what God had in store for me in this life, I'd have been so encouraged, let alone in the life to come. You see, from a Christian perspective, I guess we could say that in a sense there are four aspects to this continuum that we call time. Of course, there is the the past, the present, and the future. And by future, I mean what happens in this life. There's a question mark over that, isn't there? Because we don't know what will happen from one day to the next. So we've got the past, the present, and the future. But there's also a fourth stage that I want to call final reality. Final reality. Because although we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, we do know what's going to happen in the end. Because God has revealed it to us, at least in part. Now, I think this uh, line of thinking perhaps invites the invitation that we've got a pretty bleak, uh, dim view of life, Uh, that that it's just something to be endured before we can get to this blissful final reality. But that's not the case. In, In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life and have it to the full. Fullness of life begins in the here and now. It begins the moment we put our trust in Jesus, no matter what our personal circumstances. As one theologian put it, but as so often in Revelation and in Christian thinking generally, present and future overlap and interlock in various ways. And already some of the blessings of the final city are to be experienced by God's people. And as I thought uh, of these churches that John wrote to, on the verge of facing the most intense persecution, I began to think of our future. And it occurred to me that as we think of our unknown future, that bit before the final reality, there are two dangers, there are two traps that we can fall into, namely naivety and alarmism. Firstly, naivety. All of us, especially those of us who have grown up in the Western world, have lived through an unprecedented time of prosperity. That doesn't mean that we've been privileged compared to the people around us. It doesn't mean that our lives have been easy. But in general terms, this has been the cushiest period of human history in which to live, ever, ever. The two world wars are behind us. I don't think there's anybody in this congregation who will have a clear memory of those wars. Extreme poverty has been in decline the world over. Uh, for a a significant period of time, although COVID threatens to uh, reverse that trend. Uh, Disease control has had a tremendous impact. Infant mortality has been in sharp decline uh, globally since about 1900. 
We could go on all day about the advantages that we have over our ancestors. And certainly here in Australia, we enjoy a standard of living that would have been unimaginable for those who have gone before us. But it would be naive to think that this will continue indefinitely. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty in our world, I think perhaps more than any of us have seen in our lifetimes. Climate change, population growth, uh, political instability, COVID. We don't really know what life will be like in the future. And so we must be prepared for change. And we must be prepared uh, to keep trusting God no matter what the future holds. It'd be naive to assume that everything is going to stay more or less the same. The second danger is alarmism. Alarmism. People seem to enjoy predicting all manner of catastrophes. Uh, During the Cold War, a lot of people thought that uh, a nuclear holocaust was imminent. And depending on your definition of imminent, it wasn't. It hasn't happened. Uh, You often hear Christians saying, we're living in the end times which is perfectly true, because from a biblical perspective, everything from the birth of Jesus onwards is the end times. But what they normally mean is that things have got so bad that Jesus is bound to return in the immediate future. But if you lived in Europe in the 1300s, you may well have thought that the end was nigh. The bubonic plague, the Black Death, swept across the continent And in about six years, it killed 30% of everyone. Some estimates have it as high as 60%. The world has always been fraught with danger and difficulty. And today there are things that cause alarm, and understandably so, but that doesn't mean that we have to be alarmist. Alarmism generates fear, and God's people should not live in fear. The churches that John wrote to were facing persecution, the the, the most extreme persecution, but they were still called to be the church, to point the world to Christ and his kingdom, and to live lives of love, joy, and worship. So let's not be naive about the realities of this world, but equally, let's not be alarmist, because whatever the situation globally or locally Our mission remains the same, to point the world to Christ and his kingdom through our words and our actions and our way of life, and above all, through our worship, which is a way of life. And the reason that we can remain joyful and keep worshipping is that we know the end game. We have this picture of the final reality. According to John's vision, those who pass through tribulation, and tribulation is a state of great trouble or suffering, those who pass through tribulation, in this case uh, persecution, will have, it says, will have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is uh, quite a strange image, this idea of washing uh, a white robe in blood and it coming out, uh, sorry, uh, washing a dirty robe in blood and it coming out white. Um, But what it means is that through Jesus, the Lamb of God, through his death on a cross, those who put their faith in him are forgiven and cleansed of all their sin and wrongdoing. And because of this, because we've been forgiven and put right with God, we can be with him forever in this place where heaven and earth meet. 
sheltered with his presence. Verses 16 to 17 say this, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Imagine what that verse means to Syrian Christians who have been left homeless and are uh, refugees. And it's that last sentence that I want to finish on. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Imagine God, the creator of the universe, wiping a tear from your eye, carefully, gently, lovingly. During this brief study of Revelation, we've seen some very dramatic and vivid images of God in all his awesome power, majesty, and glory. But the image that I want us to hold on to right now is that of God wiping the tears from our eyes. Because as we move from Advent to Christmas, we're going to see that although God is powerful and awesome and, in a sense, unimaginable, he is also present and intimate and involved. He came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born into a poor family, born in a place where they sheltered animals. And as we saw in our skit this morning, the very first people to visit him were a group of scruffy shepherds. Shepherds were despised at that time. And it struck me that the chorus of our skit began with words that are almost identical to the words of praise that John heard in God's throne room. Our chorus began this morning, the one that we all sang. Sing praises to God and give him glory. In God's throne room, John heard Amen, praise and glory. It is the same church who proclaimed both sets of words. Because we are part of that multitude that God saw in, sorry, that John saw in God's throne room. We sang God's praises as part of that little skit here in a church in Springfield. And we've also seen this uh, postcard from paradise, this picture of the whole church praising God in heaven. And we belong to that multitude just as much as we belong to this little church in Springfield. And it's Jesus who's made it possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, through your word, we're able to, to see a picture of the future of your church safe in a place where heaven and earth meet. Uh, forever with you. We recognize that there are, there are Christians around the world who take tremendous comfort in that because of the, the dire situations that we're, they're in and we pray for them now. Uh, but we also take tremendous comfort from that. Living in an uncertain world, it's very good to know that you are in control, that ultimately your will will be done and that the end is, is, already, is already set. It's already written in your book. We thank you uh, that you have made our salvation possible through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.